The day of the Lord is coming. Does the way you live your life reflect that? Light on the Hill is next. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you. Cause all I need is Thank you for starting your week off with us here at Light on the Hill. We'll be in Zechariah chapter 14 today and for most of this week. As you'll hear in a moment, it speaks of the day of the Lord, the tribulation period. As you'll learn, some things need to happen before this tribulation begins, such as the revelation of a final antichrist and the rapture. Let's hear about it now as we join our teacher, Pastor James Cadiz. All right, let's continue on as we get into chapter 14 and it says behold the day of the lord cometh and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee now this is of course a very very important reference when we say the day of the lord um oftentimes people conflate the day of the lord with uh, a very specific uh, moment in time. And when I say a moment in time, they oftentimes refer to it as a very specific day. I've heard some people actually conflate the term, uh, the day of the Lord with the rapture. I've heard people refer to the day of the Lord as a very fast moment where God um, expels his judgment uh, in a very short uh, period of time. But when we look at the phrase, the day of the Lord, we are actually talking about the tribulation period. And I want everybody to understand that. Now, we have talked about this pretty extensively in the past. As a matter of fact, uh, when I did my introduction to the book of Revelation several years ago, when we had finished the New Testament, one of the discussions was about this term, the day of the Lord, and what it actually means, and why uh, we view it that way. So when we talk about the day of the Lord, uh, clearly Zechariah is talking about a moment that has not yet taken place in history, right? This is a very important distinction. I think one that's critical for us to understand. And indeed, we are talking about the tribulation. Now, uh, in order for the tribulation to commence, there are a lot of things uh, that need to take place, right? Number one, the tribulation cannot commence uh, until the church is raptured, right? But what's uh, even more interesting is Per Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, we know we cannot see the commencement of the tribulation until the Antichrist is revealed. And not only must he be revealed, but he also must execute uh, what is the strengthening of an existing treaty. Now, there's a lot of uh, presupposition that exists or centers around what this treaty might be. Some people say that this treaty is the uh, Abraham Accords. Uh, some people uh, speculated that the uh, treaty may have very well been the treaties that we witnessed between Egypt and Jordan. Remember, there was one uh, treaty in Egypt that was executed in 1979 between Egypt and Israel. There was another treaty that was executed between Israel and Jordan in 1994. 
And then when we talk about a treaty, oftentimes people confuse the Abraham Accords with an actual treaty, and they were not treaties. They're actually a series of normalization agreements, right? Keep in mind, there's a big difference between the two. If two nations are warring or two nations are at a point where they have uh, engaged in war in recent times and never really settled the conflict between them, there are times where you have these long-term ceasefires, like for example, uh, you've got uh, Egypt, which was at war with Israel for a considerable and substantial amount of time, right? And there were moments of ceasefires that exist between those wars, between Egypt and Israel. Or in some cases, you had a type of situation where things were indicative of a ceasefire because the nation got their rear kicked, right? So for example, Egypt got their tails kicked a few times uh, when uh, they made war against Israel and it did not fare well uh, with them. And of course, uh, there are several Arab nations that learned that lesson the hard way. And so as a result of the time that they chose to spend in uh, ceasing to engage in any kind of war type actions, then at some point the leaders get together and they build out a peace treaty. And of course, the peace treaty that existed uh, between or that was executed between Egypt and of course Israel uh, was perhaps in large part a massive result of a lot of the work between Anwar Sadat and of course who was the, the president of Egypt at the time and of course the prime minister of Israel right so uh, that came as a result of it Anwar Sadat of course lost his life because of those efforts he was assassinated uh, very likely as a result so the treaty was initiated between Egypt and Israel and still has not yet been put in any kind of jeopardy as a matter of fact, there were some people that feared that that treaty might have been put in jeopardy when uh, everything happened uh, there in Egypt recently, Haram al-Sharif, when that big old riot ensued and the Islamic Brotherhood leadership kind of took, uh, sort of took over. Um, I do believe, by the way, and I'll still stick to my guns on this one, and I don't think I'm wrong, that that was duly large in part uh, to uh, the Clinton Secretary of State uh, era, right, and some of the actions that had taken place there that was something that they encouraged and I think they actually wanted as a matter of fact what we saw happen in Libya during that time was definitely a direct result of Clinton's uh, State Department and so it's interesting how God will use the most heinous and ugly of people to accomplish his purposes and certainly what had uh, commenced in Libya through what the United States allowed to happen and even encouraged in some cases is actually becoming a great contributor to many of the things that we are what we know we're going to end up seeing in Ezekiel uh, chapter 38 because now there's a massive civil war going on in Libya because Libya finds itself in a place where there is no uh, leadership and so now within this civil war you've got Russia who is in essence controlling the majority section of that civil war right and I believe that when that civil war ends which I believe the same thing concerning its commencement I think that was something that was done in essence um, more related to Russia than it was the internal politics of the country. But when it ends, 
it will leave Russia in a place of control. And that becomes particularly important because the coast that is north of the Libyan border is, of course, the Mediterranean. And that will contribute greatly to Russia's influence as they continue to position themselves as the leaders uh, or the nation uh, that uh, hosts the leader of the attack that we read about in Ezekiel chapter 38. So going back, we do see examples of a couple of treaties that have been made with Israel, again, Egypt and Jordan. Now, it's important to note this, and I think that we need to know the difference between what a treaty is and a normalization agreement. When a normalization agreement is signed, very similar to that of what we're seeing in the Abraham Accords, these are not treaties. People use that term as though uh, it is, but they're not. A normalization agreement is different in that the nations that engage in those agreements are nations that have not been plagued by war between one another, right? There has never uh, been, or at least in a significantly recent time, there has never been a real war in between them, but there has been a resistance towards diplomatic relationships, and in even some cases where diplomatic relationships have been established through back channels like what we're seeing with Saudi Arabia um, there was never any real economic opportunities between the nations because nations that do not have serious diplomatic relations established between them nations that don't have diplomatic cores that are represented in each other's countries cannot participate in economic benefits due to business being exchanged back and forth and it's very interesting because when the UAE entered into the normalization agreement with Israel, we already knew. I knew it. Most of us knew it that we're looking at it and actually analyze all the things that are going on in the land. We were very convinced of the fact that eventually the kingdom of Saudi Arabia would eventually jump into it because understand this, the UAE and many other uh, people who are sort of uh, perpendicular to that area that have participated in these normalization agreements would not have ever done so had it not been for the blessing of the royal family of the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, right? So we know for a fact that because these normalization agreements were uh, in essence executed and done at a very official and formal capacity, which has resulted from diplomatic relations being executed between both nations to the point where we have seen uh, within the last couple of years, the um, embassy of the United Arab Emirates actually put in Israel. And as a matter of fact, many of the upcoming embassies that we are talking about that are representative representative of many of these Gulf states are actually talking about setting them up in Jerusalem, which makes it even more interesting. So, which perhaps it might be part of an unspoken part of the normalization agreements that actually demands that they set up their embassies in Jerusalem simply as a mechanism of solidarity so that uh, the rest of the Arab world will not kick and scream and yell concerning what actually has gone on. Now, um, I think that these, these are important variables to be considering. And so when we're talking about this, the result of a normalization agreement is exactly that, a normalization of economic relationships, relationships in aviation, which is something that's specifically named in these agreements. And a lot of things have actually changed. As a matter of fact, I never thought I would see the day when Emirates um, as an airline would actually provide service now into Israel. You thought that that was something that would not happen. That's already happening. 
And when Bibi Netanyahu came into office with the coalition that he established, which, by the way, the coalition that he established on this time around is very different from the coalition that he established in the Knesset several years ago, and it's not one that's hanging on a thread. As a matter of fact, it's one that exists with a major amount of support, and the perhaps the most significant part of that support is what they call the extreme right-wing Zionist section of uh, the Israeli government, which, by the way, I would not call them extreme or anything from that stretch of the imagination. I do appreciate the term Zionism. I think that that's a term that is fair to use because the reality of it is there is an extreme contingency, as people would call them, I don't call them that, that do uh, function from within the cabinet of the Israeli prime minister's office uh, that are making some changes that are pretty Crazy, actually. I mean, kind of cool if you think about it. Ben Gavir, for example, we talked about this, and we uh, I did a couple of videos on this. Uh, pretty significant fact. Um, one of the members uh, of the Knesset actually walked on the Temple Mount and uh, made some very clear demands as into why uh, those members of the nation of Israel should be free to pray on the Temple Mount, specifically Jews, just like the Arabs do. Now, again, you have to understand how remarkably controversial something like that is. And when you think about sort of the Heshemite influence, right, we're talking about Jordan, we're talking about that kind of influence on what happens on the Temple Mount and the fact that there is a government in place as we speak right now in that region that is in essence not really caring about what the Jordanians think concerning that, it means we've got some doors that are opening. And what is perhaps even more interesting and more unique is that with all of this happening, we're not seeing the kind of media outcry that uh, we have seen in the past, which seems to give us every indication of the fact that a lot of things are changing. Now, let me go back because this brings us back to the Antichrist, right? Again, the tribulation cannot start until this treaty, whatever it is, it could be a normalization agreement, it could be a treaty, or it could be a combination of them all. Uh, I am not going to put it outside of the realm of thought that this could be some kind of a, for lack of a better term, concise action to bring together or combine the existing peace treaties of the region with the normalization agreements of the region and create some kind of an economic super state. It's very possible that something like that could be happening and just understand there is a growing consensus that is beginning to deny the unreasonable demands of the Palestinian Authority, right? Uh, and again, we've talked about this. Uh, for those of you that are not familiar with the term PA or Palestinian Authority, they are what used to be called the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, under the leadership of a guy named Yasser Arafat, which is really funny to me, by the way, uh, something that a lot of people might not know. He claims to be the Palestinian that's concerned with the interests of Palestinians, yet Yasser Arafat was born in Egypt, right? It's kind of a funny, kind of a funny picture. And when you look at an overwhelming majority of the Palestinian population, they represent a group of Arabs that were born all around Israel, many of which now in the newer generation were born there in Israel simply because of the fact that their families a couple of generations prior were actually seated in the region. But all of them have 
origins of nationality that is not necessarily in what they call the Palestinian region. As a matter of fact, one interesting uh, note that I should remind everybody of, the name Palestinian was one that was given to Jewish settlers or people, Jews who lived in the region at the time uh, of one of the last Roman emperors who actually, in essence, I think it brings us into the second century AD, who basically referred to the Jews or called the Jews Palestinians, naming them after their enemies of ancient biblical times as a way to mock them. So the name Palestinian was actually given to Jews originally, um, which is very interesting. And oftentimes I bring a lot of these things up and I get accused, just like I probably will on this video, I get accused oftentimes of being anti-Palestinian or anti-Arab for that matter, right? Uh, but the reality of it is, it is my love for the Palestinian people that motivates me to speak concerning these issues as openly as I have, because the only Palestinians right now that are prosperous and doing well in Israel are the ones that choose to be productive Israeli citizens working with the Jewish state. And I think that that's a very important thing. As a matter of fact, it is interesting and I will say this because it is true, the largest concentration of Arab millionaires outside of the UAE and Saudi Arabia, because in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, there are a significant amount of Arabs that are multimillionaires, and in some cases, billionaires because of the oil uh, trade. But the largest concentration of millionaire Arabs, even bigger than Egypt, are Palestinians who every single one of them choose to walk cooperatively with the state of Israel. And as a result of those relations, I believe God has blessed their decision to do so and has blessed them as a people group. And by the way, very interesting, they are amongst some of the most influential in the business world in the region. And I believe that that is because they have decided to become Israeli citizens and be productive and God has blessed them as a result. Uh, and I also will move on to make one more statement that I think is important before we kind of carry on with all of this. And that is the fact that it is tragic to see how much the Palestinian people have been suffering because of the evil that is being done at the encouragement of the international community, as well as organizations like the Palestinian Authority and Hamas and Hezbollah, because what they are doing is at the expense of the suffering of the Palestinian people, they are building military type infrastructures that are destroying their own people and not necessarily the Israelis. And I think that that's important to point out. As a matter of fact, the largest concentration of IDF soldiers that were recently lost, Israeli Defense Force soldiers that were recently lost at the northern border was a direct result of them clearing the infamous tunnels in an attempt to save the lives of Palestinians and Lebanese uh, Arabs that were at the northern portion uh, of the country north of Dan and members of the IDF were being killed left and right defending the lives of innocent Palestinians. And I think that that's something that should be noted. It should also be noted that many of the Palestinians that have died in the last couple of years, as a matter of fact, I think the overwhelming majority to the tune of roughly 85% uh, that have died as a result of military operations died because of misfire missiles and weapons that were being shot from Judea and Samaria uh, by 
Palestinian uh, sympathizers or what they call Palestinian sympathizers. They really don't care about Palestinians, but by organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah and the like. So I think that's very important to note. I think it's something that we should be very well aware of. And I have a lot, and I mean a, a lot of friends that have uh, Palestinian roots. And uh, we have a lot of friends that um, were born and raised in Israel, uh, in Palestinian cities like Beit Lahem and uh, many areas like that, Nazareth and a few other of these areas. And I'm going to tell you right now, or certain sections of that area, uh, certainly in Gaza, and many of them will share the same sentiment with you. Many of them will share how much harder their life is because of the politics, the internal politics of the terrorist organizations that function in the region, right? So this is a complex issue. And a lot of people say, oh, well, it's just if we just got rid of Israel, then we solve all the problems. As a matter of fact, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter, as I demonstrated to you guys on New Year's Eve, actually believes that in order to help the Palestinian people, you need to kill all the Jews. That's pretty much what she says. Eliminate the Jewish state, right? Which is a very fancy, nice way of saying, let's kill all the Jews. Well, the reality of it is, if you destroy the Jews in the region, you destroy the Palestinians in the region because there are many Palestinians. Palestinians that live happy and enjoyable lives as a result of the work or the fruit of the labor of the Jews. But with all of that said, there are some unique and remarkable complexities that exist in and around that area. And this final Antichrist will not only have to be revealed to the world, but he will have to be trusted in order to execute some kind of reinforcement or making strong some kind of treaty. Now, I believe it's probably going to be a combination of treaties that exist that were sort of on the edge as well as normalization agreements. I think that the leadership going on right now in Jordan is asking for some kind of an extended conflict to start taking place in the name of preserving uh, Palestinians. I think that's going to backfire on them. And I think that the treaty that is in place, uh, that has been in place since 1994, um, I think is going to create a lot of uh, challenges for what people in Jordan, some people in Jordan are trying to do with what's going on in the Temple Mount. Nonetheless, that's what makes this need for this final Antichrist to come into fruition uh, very, very eminent and very strong. And we know that when Christ returns, right, the second coming of Christ, not to be conflated with the rapture, when the second coming of Christ takes place, that the generation that will see that second coming, as Christ says in Matthew 24, is also the same generation that will witness the abomination that causes desolate, meaning that will be the generation that witnesses the final Antichrist setting himself up in the temple and demanding to be worshipped, right? So none of this can commence. The, the tribulation cannot commence. The day of the Lord cannot commence until you have the revelation of a final Antichrist that shows up. That's the first thing, right? And the second thing that must happen is that he must execute this uh, uh, treaty whatever you want to call it, treaty normalization agreement, I think probably a hybrid between the two per Daniel chapter 9 verse 27. Now, the day of the Lord speaks of that time that will commence after the final Antichrist executes or makes strong that existing treaty. I will just tell you before we move on, praise God that we will actually be gone before that time, right? Because that time is going to prove to be one that is shaky. That time is going to prove to be one where 
uh, billions and billions and billions will die. And that is going to prove to be a time that you don't want to be alive on this earth for. You definitely want to be taken up by that time. And so I think it's really important. So when we look at Zechariah chapter 14, we are looking at a description in essence as we embark upon the beginning of the uh, tribulation. Pastor James Cadiz on Light on the Hill will be right back. Our present series is a study in the Minor Prophets. If you missed any part of it, log on to lightonthehillradio.com and click on Radio Show or listen through our Light on the Hill app. To find the app in the search bar, just type in Calvary Chapel Signal Hill. God is our wonderful provider here at Light on the Hill, and we continually look to Him for guidance and provision. If you'd like to stand with us through either a one-time donation or ongoing support, please visit lightonthehillradio.com or give through our Light on the Hill app. There is a lot going on right now in the prophetic realm, and we want to keep you informed. Pastor James releases daily videos at jamescadiz.com addressing the issues of the day from a biblical perspective. Visit jamescadiz.com for more. As we return to Pastor James, he explains why it's necessary to have a thorough understanding of the entire Bible, including the Old Testament, to really understand this book of Revelation. As I've said this before, and I will say it again, you cannot really understand the book of Revelation unless you have a thorough understanding of all of these things that you find in the Old Testament, because you touch up on a lot of areas, right? When we look at Zechariah chapter 14, we are going to be interfacing with Isaiah chapter 2, which we won't have the time to go there. Uh, we're going to be interfacing with Ezekiel chapter 37, which we certainly are not going to have time uh, to go there. We will be interfacing with Ezekiel 38 and 39. We are dealing with... Uh, many other passages like, for example, Amos, for example, the very first chapter of Amos, we sort of interface with even there. There's a lot of places that coincide and Revelation is the culmination of it all. Revelation is the revealing of all that was predicted in the Old Testament and John gets to see it and write it down. And so when you read the book of Revelation after having thoroughly studied the Old Testament, you begin to realize, wow, this isn't anything new under the sun. This is pretty awesome. Come back next time when we'll continue our study in the Minor Prophets. That's right here on Light on the Hill with Pastor James Cadiz. Remember, as a believer in Christ, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. I have found that peace only comes from you. I have found that joy only comes from you, cause all I need is